We are today going to, as I said last week, we're just going to enjoy immersing ourselves in the story that is the center of this season. And so if you've got your Bibles, I'm going to invite you to turn with me uh, to Matthew chapters 1 and 2. And I want to just go ahead and, uh, and quickly dive right into the scriptures uh, in Matthew 1. We're going to begin in verse 18, but I will just pause to point out, I know a lot of times when, uh, when we're reading through the scriptures and we're about to dive into, as a church, reading through the New Testament together starting on January 1st, I'll say more about that at the end, but I really do hope that you'll take part in doing that with us next year. I think there's going to be real power in us studying from start to finish all the New Testament together. But um, a lot of times we'll, we'll hit something like the beginning of Matthew 1 and think, oh, goodness, the genealogy. Why in the world are they going to list literally 42 generations before we get to Jesus? And I realize that's not the most exciting thing that you'll read in the New Testament. But um, understand, Matthew is writing to a Jewish audience and he's trying to put things in perspective, and he begins with Abraham. Now, the Jewish people understood this. Abraham's the father of the nation. Abraham's the one that God picked out and entered into covenant with. And the promise to Abraham, there were several parts to the promise. I'm going to make, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to prosper you. I'm going to make a great nation of you. I'm going to give you a land. But ultimately, the final word of the promise was this. All the peoples of the earth are going to be blessed through your, you and your line. And so Matthew, in telling us who Jesus is, says, let me start with this. There was Abraham, and Abraham had a son named Isaac, and Isaac had a son named Jacob. And, and he just moves down the line, and he counts off 42 generations until he comes to Joseph and Mary and Jesus. And Jesus is the fulfillment of the promise that all the peoples of the earth are going to be blessed through this one. And so he begins in verse 18 of Matthew 1. The birth of Jesus Christ came about this way. After his mother Mary had been engaged to Joseph, it was discovered before they came together that she was pregnant from the Holy Spirit. That's a major roadblock right there. We're going to return to that, that issue. So her husband Joseph, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her publicly, decided to divorce her secretly. But after he had considered these things, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. This it's just random, but somebody pointed out to me many years ago, they said, isn't it weird how many times in Scripture angels appear to women just in the flesh and appear to men in dreams? Five times in, in the next chapter we'll read about angels appearing to men in their dreams. I don't know why it's so frequently in their dreams, but guys, pay, I guess pay attention to your dreams. An angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife, because what has been conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit, as unbelievable as it sounded. She will give birth to a son, and you are to name him Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. We don't usually, in American culture, know the meaning of names, but names are so important in Jewish culture. And, and the name Jesus, it was a more modern derivation of the old Hebrew name Yeshua, or what we would call Joshua, which means Yahweh, the, the most holy name of God. Yahweh is salvation. And so it made total sense to them that if you're giving him the name Jesus, that is a reference to the fact that this is God's plan for salvation because he will save his people from their sins. Verse 22. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. See, the virgin will become pregnant and give birth to a son, and they will name him Emmanuel. It's so easy to run past that because it's a familiar part of the story. But how breathtaking did that thought have to be? The virgin will become pregnant. 
with the result of a child being born who is God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did as the Lord's angel had commanded him. He married her but did not have sexual relations with her until she gave birth to a son, and he named him Jesus. And now Matthew just leaves it to Dr. Luke to tell us all the, the details of what it was like when Jesus was born. And, of course, as we looked at last week, Luke gives us this powerful account of, of the tribulation of having to, to leave Nazareth and go to Bethlehem, and it's a packed city and all that happened there. But, but then Matthew jumps us forward in time just a little bit, and he's trying to set this in a bigger perspective as to what's going on around the birth of Jesus. And so he jumps to that in Matthew 2, and he says, After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of King Herod, Wise men, literally magi from the east, arrived in Jerusalem saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star at its rising, and we have come to worship him. The wise men are the most peculiar element in the whole story of Jesus' arrival on earth. We don't know what country they've come from. We know so little about them. We've got all kinds of references to, to wise men in ancient texts. But, but they are such an enigma in the whole story. We, we don't have any details about how they came to discern what this object in the skies signified and what God was doing. And yet they appear on the scene with more knowledge of what's taking place than apparently anybody else on earth other than Mary and Joseph. And so when King Herod heard about this, he was deeply disturbed and all of Jerusalem with him. So he assembled all the chief priests and scribes of the people and asked, him, asked them where the Christ would be born, where the, the Messiah. I mean, Herod was not a Jew, but he had been the king of, of the Jews, the regional king, for decades. And, and he knew enough about their religion to know the one thing that every Jew is, is hung up on is, when's the Messiah coming? Because the Messiah is the one that God's going to send to set us free and life's going to be good again. And so he's wanting to know all of a sudden. He had not had a great interest before now, but now he wants to know, where's this guy going to be born? And so they answer him in Bethlehem of Judea. Because this is what was written by the prophet Isaiah. And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, because out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And then Herod secretly summoned the wise men and asked them the exact time that the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child, and when you find him, report back to me, so that I too can go and worship him. Herod was a, a sly and cruel man, and he just, he, it wasn't that he was taking this lightly. He just thought a little subterfuge would probably be in order. I think I've got the best chance of snuffing this out if I just pretend that I want to worship him. And so you, you find him, and then you let me know exactly where he is, and I'm going to come and join you in worshiping him. So after hearing the king, the, the magi went on their way. And there it was, the star that they had seen at its rising. And, of course, this was no ordinary star. It's a star that's moving. It's a star that's going to literally lead them to one particular home. And it led them until it came and stopped above the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they were overwhelmed with joy. And entering the house, they saw the child with Mary's mother. And falling to their knees, they worshipped him. Just let that scene sink in. These... These wise men were such respected leaders in ancient culture. They had the authority to set people apart and anoint them as the next kings. I mean, literally king makers. And these respected men who, 
probably came with a giant entourage. If you can just picture this caravan of camels and all of the, the people who would serve them coming in and, and everybody's in awe of them. And yet these wise leaders that everyone's in awe of, they're suddenly on their knees before an infant. You just begin to get a sense of the greatness of God veiled in human flesh. Then they opened their treasures and they presented Jesus with gifts. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And then being warned in a dream, here we are men being warned in a dream again, not to go back to Herod, they returned to their own country by another route. Well, after they were gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Get up, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and stay there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to kill him. So Joseph got up, he took the child and his mother during the night, and escaped to Egypt. What a harrowing experience. I mean, it's been tough enough that they've had to go to Bethlehem. And right at the, the time of the baby's supposed to be delivered, and now they're just trying to begin to make a life here, and suddenly they've got to leave, and I don't mean in a week, they've got to leave tonight to save his life, and so they have to flee the country. So they stayed there <clears throat> until Herod's death, so that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet might be fulfilled. Out of Egypt I called my son. Matthew's going to great lengths as he's... He's recalling all these Old Testament prophecies about Jesus to, to point out that Jesus is the specific fulfillment of more than 300 very detailed Old Testament prophecies of who the Messiah would be and what he would do. Verse 16, then Herod, when he realized that he had been outwitted by the wise men, flew into a rage and he gave orders to massacre all the boys in and around Bethlehem who were two years old and under in keeping with the time that he had learned from the wise men. Then what was spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children. And she refused to be consoled because they are no more. Can you imagine the horror of, of that night and that week as every baby boy two years and under was snatched from its parents' arms and murdered before their eyes? And after Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, because those who intended to kill the child are dead. So he got up, took the child and his mother, and entered the land of Israel. What I want to share with you today as we consider these glimpses of the advent of Jesus coming in the world is just a, it's a very simple message. And it's something that you've observed, but you may never have thought about in this context before. But uh, my point today is just this, that God uses Christmas as his great magnifying glass of life. Now, a magnifying glass, the older that I have gotten, has become less of a toy and more of a tool. Uh, the, the truth be told, if I didn't have my glasses on, even though I carry a large print Bible, I couldn't stand up here and read it. I, I need the help of, of a tool like this or of these. This becomes a handy tool because it makes things that otherwise would have seemed uh, small or fuzzy or impossible to discern. Suddenly it makes them very, very large. It makes them very visible. And in a, in a very easy to understand sense, God uses Christmas and the coming of Jesus in the world as his giant magnifying glass in life 
And it's not that it causes things to happen so much as it does. It just brings things. It, it expands things so that we can clearly see what is. Now, I just really want to do two things with that idea. First of all, I just want to show you how at the first Christmas, how that was true in, in different people's lives. But then I want to bring that forward and explore what is it that God is magnifying and bringing to light in your life right now. Considering the Christmas story, the first Christmas story, the different characters and what it is that the coming of Jesus magnified and brought to light. If you want to pull out your outlines and follow along, five characters that I'll point to. And the first one is Joseph. What is it that gets magnified in Joseph's life? Well, Joseph's love for Mary obviously gets brought to light and magnified through this whole story. And it's very easy for us to project our way of doing things back into the the Christmas story. And we have to remind ourselves that first century culture was so different from how we live today. When we read that Mary and Joseph were engaged but were not yet married, it's easy for us to picture, oh, they had been dating for a while, but they just hadn't yet said, I do. And that's not how it worked at all in Jewish culture in the first century. The way they did it, we as the married parties would hate the idea as parents we might kind of like this idea but in first century culture the parents did almost all of the arranging it was absolutely an arranged marriage situation and so the way it would have worked is that joseph's parents and mary's parents would have gotten together and and talked out an agreement and a major part of the agreement is financial they had to arrive at a bargain as to what the bride price would be And when they had come to something that they both could accept, they entered into a contract and Joseph's parents would have paid a certain sum of money and it was a done deal from that point forward. This was not about, you know, have they been dating long enough? Have they fallen in love? That had little or nothing to do with the equation standardly in that culture. It was about working out what for the parents and for the family and who they thought would be a good mate for the kids. And so the point in time that we discover what's happening here is the sets of parents have already entered into a contract. Money's already changed hands, and they have begun the marriage process, which first there would be the signing of a contract, and then they would begin this period. We call it an engagement period, but the Jews considered them married, but it's kind of kind of marriage parts A and B. The contract signing is part A, and then you would wait for a period of months that could go as long as, on the long end, up to a year. And during that in-between time, what's so weird, we would think, oh, well, that's when they're going to date and really get to know each other. No, wrong-o. During that period, they don't hardly see each other at all. It's just a waiting time. And then when you are to part B, to conclude this thing, there's sort of a week-long ceremony where it's more, more of what we think of in terms of a wedding. And at the conclusion of that, on the last day of that, the knot is completely tied. And the final thing is then at, on that night, the marriage is consummated. And, and the, here's the weirdest part of all. One or more of the parents of the bride or groom have to be present to witness this to make sure that they are fully married, even physically in union with each other. So if you think you've got meddling in-laws, just give thanks to God <laughs> that you are not a first century Jewish man or woman. So wonder there are any people born out of all of that. But the point being, they're in between these two things. A contract has been made, and now Joseph and Mary are waiting for the week that all will be celebrated, and word has come back to Joseph. Mary's pregnant. 
And, you know, we don't have to use much imagination when Mary's trying to explain, you know, understand, I haven't been with a man. God's the one who did this. It's going to be God's baby. There's nobody in the room. There's none of us who would accept that story. Joseph couldn't buy it. And so the thing that was his right at that time was to be able to, in order to defend his own dignity, because who's everybody going to think is the father of this child? Oh, Joseph must have jumped the gun, and, and now Mary's pregnant, and they're not even fully married. He would have looked bad, too. He could have protected his honor by publicly pointing out, she's pregnant, and I don't have anything to do with this. And she would have, at the very least have become despised and rejected within the community. If they followed the letter of the law, she would have been stoned by the elders of the community. But we, what we see exposed and magnified is Joseph's heart, that he cares about her, that even though he's hurt because he's convinced that she's been unfaithful to him, he just can't stand the thought of humiliating her or disgracing her. And so even though he knows people are going to talk about him, they're going to make assumptions about him that aren't true, he would rather bear the brunt of that and just deal with this quietly and just step back and deal with his own pain than to try and, and do her any harm. What gets exposed is that he cares and that he really loves her. The second character in the story that we'll consider is Mary. What is it that's, that's magnified in her life? Well, quite simply, it's just her love for and devotion to God and her commitment to doing his will. We saw that last week in Luke's account. You know, Consider that Mary is probably just a teenager when all of this happens. Joseph might have been a bit older based on how things were done in that culture. He might have been a teenager. He might have been a number of years older. But, but Mary very likely is a teen. Can you imagine, ladies, can you just imagine when you were only a teenager, single, just no experience in the whole realm of motherhood or carrying a child or anything, an angel shows up and says, Hey, God's been paying attention to you. He's crazy about you. You're highly favored, and you're about to be pregnant, and you're going to have a baby, and you're not married. That'd be tough enough in the 21st century. We can't fathom what that would be like in the first century. You would be absolutely ostracized. And yet that's the message to Mary. God has chosen you. You will be the bearer of God. When God looked at all of humanity and said, I want somebody, when my son comes to earth, as he gives up all that he has in heaven, he is even going to give up his intellect to become fully human. He will not be self-aware as an infant. He will have the mind of an infant. Somebody's going to have to teach him who he is. They're going to teach him how to walk and talk. They're going to have to teach. Think about this. They're going to have to teach God ethics. They're going to have to teach God right and wrong. Yeah, go home and chew on that one for a little while. And God is looking for the, the most ideal woman to do that. And he picks a teenage girl in a remote mountain village. And as that just begins to be dumped out on Mary, Mary's response blows me away. Without argument. I mean, she does say, how's that going to happen? But after asking a simple question... Her response was just simply this, I am the Lord's servant. May it be done to me according to your word. In other words, if that's what God said, bring it on. Because whatever God says is what I want. And however God wants to do it is how I want to do it. I will guarantee you, if I had been in that situation, I would have had a counterproposal. I would. 
Now, Lord, I thank you for favoring me. I thank you for noticing me. But let me just point out to you, your son is going to have a major disadvantage. If he's born out of wedlock, we all know that there is a term for babies born out of wedlock. It is not a compliment. It is an ugly word we're not going to say in church. God, you wouldn't want your child to have that kind of disadvantage. We know you wouldn't. And so how about if we call time out on your plan and we'll substitute our plan, which is wait until we're fully married and then you can still do the whole thing. You can still be the father, but it'll look like Joseph is the daddy and we won't have the disadvantage. Mary doesn't do any of that. She doesn't negotiate. What gets magnified in her life is a commitment to obeying the voice of God, to doing the will of God. Third character or set of characters in the story is the Magi. What's magnified in their lives is is simply their wisdom and their openness to follow God's leadings. We can't elaborate too much on this because we know so little about them. These guys that we don't know what country in the east they came from. We don't know how far they've traveled. And most importantly, we don't know how they have come to discern this. I mean, I'm really curious when we get to heaven to find out the details. I'm guessing with the amount of insight that they had, an angel probably had to speak a word to them. If God could reveal all this through the stars, then these really were wise, wise men. But Magi, to sum up what their role was in the culture, was they were the ones who were trusted to bring supernatural power to bear on things in the natural they were, they were supposed to be the connection between the supernatural and the natural. And we've got to say kudos to these guys because in this instance, in a world where no one had a clue what was going on, and the Jewish people who had the scriptures, they had hundreds of prophecies about the coming of the Messiah, and yet they had no clue what was coming off right there under their noses. And yet these guys heard what God said, acted on it, and had traveled for a long distance to come and be present and they had such insight such prophetic insight as to who it was they were coming to see that it wasn't just any king and their gifts speak volumes about their wisdom and insight as to what was going on I, I don't know but I, I would I'd love to know if God did send a message through an angel what all got communicated to them because the gifts that they brought spoke volumes three gifts gold frankincense and myrrh And the three gifts speak so much of who it is the gifts are brought for. Gold, a gift befitting a king. Incense, frankincense, literally incense, is what you would offer to a god. And they've come to worship the one who is born to be king, who is also God. And the final gift was myrrh. That's the real peculiar one. It's the burial spice. It's what you would use in the embalming of a dead body. As they come to worship the king who is divine, but who is born to die on our behalf. And their gifts are a prophetic declaration of what this king has come to do. These guys who otherwise would have been in obscurity, suddenly it's magnified. They are dialed into what God is saying. And I'm so convinced that there's no randomness in the Christmas story. When God first lets the the word out as to what's going down in Bethlehem, who are the two groups of people who are told anything about it? Lowly shepherds who are the absolute bottom rung of the ladder in that culture, the poorest of the poor. God brings them in, and at the same time, he brings in, I 
for lack of a better way of saying it, these pagans from another land. Which is, again, a reminder of the promise going all the way back to Abraham. Jesus isn't coming to save the Jews. Jesus is the fulfillment of the promise that this is to be a blessing for all the peoples of the earth. God cares about everyone. Even these pagan wise men and the culture that they represented. The fourth character in the story whose heart gets magnified here is Herod. And it's Herod's paranoia, self-absorption, and cruelty that just get brought into focus. Herod is, is one of the most peculiar characters in ancient history. He came to the, the throne of Israel at about 25 years old, somewhere in his mid-20s. And by the time Jesus is born, Herod is around 60, maybe in his early 60s. And uh, the, the whole story of how he got there is odd because he wasn't royalty and he wasn't Jewish. And yet he's considered one of the greatest kings of Israel in terms of his accomplishments. He's, he is that, that strange two-sided coin. On the one hand, he built more and accomplished more than any other Jewish king of, of that period of history. And yet he was as cruel and ruthless as any leader that the area would ever know. He was an Edomite, you know... Of the twin sons of Isaac, you had Jacob and Esau. Jacob is who's named renamed Israel. So all of that line, those are the, uniquely the people of God. And then Esau's descendants are the Edomites. So he is an Edomite, and they were never close friends with the Israelites. And so he's an Edomite who ends up being on the throne of Israel by hook and crook, basically. I mean, he, he just pulled every string he could trying to appeal to the Roman Senate to have him installed as a leader. And somewhat to his surprise, they made him the king over all of Palestine. And once he was in that position, he would do anything to save it. He, he already had a wife and a son, and he just completely abandoned them and chose another wife for political purposes because he thought that the Senate would be more likely to approve him with a different wife. Which you would think, poor lady and son that were left behind, but they were better off than the next wife. He ended up having her assassinated because he felt threatened by her. He had, over the years, numerous family members assassinated. I mean, th think Saddam Hussein or Kim Jong-un in terms of, of the level of paranoia that, that he had. This guy had a, a force of 2,000 uh, soldiers that were just his private security force. Their, their job was just to protect him. And he had a secret police force that was kind of, uh, it, it's been referenced as sort of the picture of what Hitler and the Nazi, re Nazi regime used in the 20th century to, uh, in plain clothes, to just infiltrate every situation in the culture to find out who out there might have anything against the king so that they could just take them out and deal with him. And so uh, just all of this paranoia and, and hatred and just everything to protect him, protect himself and his power. And so he wasn't a Jew. He wasn't royalty. He was just installed in this position. And you can imagine how much the people despised him. He's been on the throne for about 35 years. And now Wise men show up and announce, we've come. And it's not like these are just Joe Blows off the street. When their procession came in, you can be assured that all of Jerusalem is a buzz. These are important people. Why are they here? And, and they don't make any bones about it. Here, because we've come to worship the one who was born to be the king of the Jews. Herod's immediately beside himself. He's got to murder this guy. Before he can grow up, before he can learn his ABCs, he's got to be snuffed out. And when the first plan for, for that doesn't work, 
we'll just kill all the babies. I don't care how many have to die. We will kill them all. You see, the, the coming of Jesus and the Christmas story doesn't make Herod a cruel man. It doesn't make him into a, a more monstrous being. It just brings to light what he already was. You see, in every one of these lives, the arrival of Jesus, the advent of Christ becomes a great magnifying glass of what's in the heart. But you know, the cool thing about a magnifying glass is it works in both directions. I can look down and see what's beneath me expanded, magnified, but from below, you can look through and get the same effect. And the beauty of the Christmas story is Christmas did not just magnify and expose what was going on in human hearts. The most important thing that happened at Christmas was it magnified and exposed the reality of who God is and what his heart is like. Suddenly, in a unique way, all of humanity has an opportunity to see through this lens what God is really like. Have you ever paused to imagine what it would have been like to live prior to the coming of Jesus and to try and have any clue as to who God is and what he's like. I mean, the Jewish people have been around for so many centuries and they still have so little idea of what God is like. I mean, that they have come to understand that there is one true God and that he is the creator. But think how little they knew of God. They had written words as to commands that he had given and things that they were supposed to do and things they were supposed to avoid. And they had been given spoken messages through the prophets. And, and they get little glimpses of what God is like. But, I mean, can you appreciate how lost they were as to knowing anything about the heart of God? I mean, like, here are some fundamental questions. Is he mad? Is he harsh? Is he a tyrant? I mean, most every leader that they've ever known, Herod being a prime example, they're power hungry and they're, they're trying to see what they can get out of the people. And they're wanting to use the people under them. Is God like that since most earthly leaders are that way? Is God that way? What is the heart of God? Is he harsh? I mean, you've got to admit, a lot in the Old Testament law, you could come away saying he must be a really tough, harsh person, that, that God. It's a gigantic question. What is God really like? And with the coming of Jesus, suddenly the curtain is pulled back. Suddenly we're given this brand new first-hand look at God with skin on. John, Jesus, one of his two closest friends, when he writes his gospel account, it's always in a unique way. And when John describes the coming of Jesus into the world, few people ever want to preach John's account because it doesn't sound cozy like, like Luke's account or even Matthew's account. John references Jesus as the word of God, the, the logos of God. That term, Greek term logos, we, we translate it as word, but it's more than just word. It's, it's the revelation of or communication of, of a concept or a reality. If, if there's something that I've got hidden, you know, behind the curtain back here, and I, I want you to know what that is, whatever images or words or descriptions, whatever I could do to bring to light what is hidden, that would be logos that I'm using to try and get into your head and your heart what's hidden over here. 
And so Jesus is, is the Logos of God. He's not just the Word of God. He is the revelation of who God is. That's what John's trying to, to say when he opens his gospel account by saying, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Through him everything was made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of man. And the light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood him. And as he just goes on to spell out this one who would reveal who God is and what he's like, as you get down to the middle of that opening chapter, here's what he says about Jesus. So the word became human. And made his home among us. Oh, what's he going to be like? What is God going to be like? And if you've got to sum it up in one sentence, here's what John said. Jesus reveals about God. He was full of unfailing love and faithfulness. Somebody say amen. Thank you. Thank you, God. Of all the, the scary threatening things God could have been. Jesus reveals that the heart of God is a heart of unfailing love and of faithfulness. And he says, and we've seen his glory, the glory of the Father's one and only Son. He was glorious. But he's just full of love and faithfulness. Don't you just almost hear surprise in John's voice? We imagine so many things of what God would be like. And he just didn't fit many of those things. He's just more loving than we imagine, more glorious than we imagine. And he, he explains further, But to all who received him and who accepted him, he gave them the right to become the children of God. I mean, John is covering some serious ground in just a few words. This one who is the creator of the world, the one who reveals the reality of who God is. He has come to earth. He has taken on flesh. And he is not what we expected. We expected so many scary things. But we find this heart of unfailing love and faithfulness. And here's the thing that's even more amazing than that. For all of those who would align themselves with him, this one who is the only, the one and only son of God. The only one who belongs in the family of God. The only one who could ever please God. And yet he declares that everyone who will align with him, who will believe in him, who will accept him, who will trust him, he then will make them to be the sons and daughters of God. Wow. There's only one who deserves to be a child of God. And that one and only says... I'm here to show you in the flesh who God is and what he's like. And he's so much better than you imagined. But I'm here to do more than show you God. I'm here to tell you, you too, just like me, can belong to God. Your life can be made just as pleasing to God. You can be as much a son or a daughter of God as I am. This is the message of Jesus. But you've got to let go of your agenda. You've got to line up with me. You've got to trust that I am the one. I'm not one of many. I am the one and only Son of God. I am the only one who can reveal God. It's only by getting aligned with me. Allah can't do this. Muhammad can't do this. Confucius can't do this. Buddha, nobody else can do this. Only Jesus. And when you align yourself with Him, you become a Son of God. 
a daughter of God with all of the benefits. And when that happens, we're reborn, not with a physical birth resulting from human passion or plan, but a birth that comes from God. That's the good news of Christmas right there. Now, there's one other thing I want you to consider before we're done. I said Christmas is God's great magnifying glass, and in every life that we look at in the first Christmas story, it's certainly a magnifying what's going on there. But for every Christmas for more than 2,000 years, God's been breaking out his great magnifying glass. Every Christmas. Just blowing things up. Just just zooming in and exposing what's going on in human hearts ever since then. And you've watched it. Whether you recognized it for what it was or not, you've watched it going around you. Think about it. Think about how much every December things that have gone more or less unnoticed suddenly just are just brought out in the spotlight. They're magnified. Somebody who's been sort of managing their pain and managing their addictions and the holidays roll around and boom, suddenly they're off the wagon. Somebody who's been managing their hurt feelings and their relational brokenness and they've just been sort of making that work and the holidays come on and just suddenly they're just throwing up on each other. All this anger and angst is coming out. Did the holidays make it happen? Nope. They just exposed what was already there. Amen. You see, that happens all the time. And so I just want you to consider a simple question. A couple of questions, really. First of all, what is it that Christmas magnifies in your life? I put some possibilities down in your outline. Consider them. I want you to be honest now. You don't have to stand up and testify, but just be honest with yourself at least. What's Christmas magnifying in your life this year? Is it magnifying stress and financial pressure? Well, the clearest sign of that is you've been mumbling to yourself and everybody who will listen saying, I'll just be so glad when it's over with. I'm just so stressed out and tired of it, creating so much financial pressure in my life. Can I just tell you this? If you think that the holidays are what stressed you out and created financial pressure, you've probably deceived yourself. Because the holidays didn't cause it. Christmas didn't cause it. It just magnified it. God's showing you issues with stress and financial bondage that are magnified at the holidays. Maybe when the holidays roll around, you feel an overwhelming sense of discouragement or depression. I'm not here to put anybody down. A lot of us have felt the weight of depression in life. That's a terrible sickness to have to deal with. But isn't it amazing how that gets magnified during the holidays? Christmas doesn't make you depressed. It magnifies the reality you deal with throughout the year. Maybe just a general sense of unhappiness or addiction. The holidays don't make addicts. But it's crazy how much addicts and hurting people act out during the holidays. And unhappiness is magnified. Relational brokenness. Whew. It's amazing how much of that brokenness suddenly comes into focus during the holidays and how much we suddenly feel the pain of past relational brokenness. Now, at this point, you may be looking at this and going, well, that's kind of a peculiar thing to notice, but that doesn't sound like a very good gift from God, does it? We're already hurting year-round, but thank you, Jesus, for making that pain so much more intense with your coming every Christmas. Well, that would sound like a cruel gift, and it's not a cruel gift at all. How does this whole thing work? 
You see, it's not that Christmas is a magical season. It's just that Christmas represents a transformational encounter with the person of God in Christ. And whenever God draws near, things get magnified. Whatever's there gets magnified. I mean in a very real sense. Have you ever been maybe at a time out in nature or or more likely at a time where you're in worship and it's not just another worship service but God just shows up and you can't describe it it's, it wasn't about the music it wasn't about the sermon Jesus just shows up in, in just manifest glory have you ever noticed in those moments things just get magnified if there's unconfessed sin in your life it just blows you just want to get on your knees and just just confess and beg forgiveness and just be right with God but what's so cool is God's presence doesn't just magnify sin. It just magnifies whatever's there. It just strips away everything that we would try and use to, be, to make up and cover up. And it just exposes reality for what it is. And it's a gift from God that that happens. That's why it's a gift from God if the holidays right now are exposing the fact that you've got a major problem with stress or relational problems or financial bondage or or issues of depression or whatever kind if it's bringing problems with unresolved hurt and addiction that comes out of that if it's bringing that out it's not because God's going I just want you to hurt during the holidays no he's bringing that out into the light because he wants to touch that he wants to heal that he wants to address that Jesus has come not just so he can save your soul for eternity but because he wants to bring the good things of the kingdom in your life now we don't just live for one day Jesus is coming back. We celebrate Advent. Christ has come. Christ is coming. And Christ is here. He has arrived. And so whatever you're dealing with, whatever pain, whatever has now been magnified at Christmas. And why at Christmas? Because at Christmas the world turns something of its attention toward God. And says, come Lord Jesus. We celebrate Jesus. The parts of the world are going, don't talk about Jesus. Let's talk about happy holidays. But enough of us are still going, let's celebrate Jesus. He is the reason for the season. And Jesus draws near as we celebrate him. And in his presence, things are exposed. And we suddenly begin to identify our pain. And it's not that Jesus is going, hate it for you. But that hurts. No, he's saying, good, I'm glad this is coming out in the open. I want to touch that. I want to mend that. I want to help you not manage that. I want to help you resolve that. I want you to experience healing and growth out of that. Don't just manage the pain. It's why it keeps coming back again and again. Jesus is saying, I'm not trying to teach you about pain management. I'm trying to teach you that I have come as the healer. I have come as the restorer, as the redeemer, and I want to do it in you. So if something's hurting right now, if something's got you wrapped up, if you are just counting it down, please, Lord Jesus, let the 26th just get here so I can get some relief. Why don't you ask for more than relief this year? You want to really go out on a limb? I don't know if anybody's crazy enough to pray this. Why don't you ask God to continue to magnify the pain until you're willing to press in and get real healing? 
Why don't you decide this year, I want more than relief. I want the one who can heal me. And the truth be told, there's a lot of us who need that. Now, I'm not trying to to break what's already been fixed. The truth of the matter is, Christmas may be magnifying things that God's already done in your life. And if that's the case, and I know this reality in my own life. I've, I've been through pain at the holidays, but I also know the reality of the holidays and the presence of Christ just magnifying a sense of peace. Just magnifying a sense of joy and settledness. You, you know what that's like? Where you just, you just want to go, oh Lord Jesus, can we just live in this forever? Can we just stretch the holidays out forever? Because there's just this sense of, of overwhelming joy and peace. God's magnifying the work that he's done of healing and bringing real peace and joy in your life. Is not what the calendar says that's brought that. It is the presence of Christ. It's really easy at the holidays to come to church and without meaning to, to go to autopilot. We're going to sing those Christmas songs. He's going to tell the Christmas story. Yada, yada, yada. We'll go home and have some lunch. I don't want you to do that today. If you're hurting, if you're stressed, if your heart's just troubled and you can't even put your finger on it, you just know you sense, you, you sense distress. If you know that this time of the year, it absolutely does not stir up a greater sense of peace and joy of contentment. It stirs something else in you. Would you at least begin to press into that today? Would you ask God to just help you see, God, what is it that's going on in me? I don't, I don't think I'm feeling what I'm supposed to be feeling at this season when our hearts are turning toward you and your presence is somehow uniquely with us and it's exposing and magnifying things. I don't like what I'm feeling. I don't know what to do with that. Would you invite him to just press in to expose things and to do a real healing work in you today as we turn to him together in prayer right now? Across the room, those of you who are watching and listening online, would you bow with me in prayer? Father, we just want to stop and say thank you for your son, our Lord Jesus. Thank you for what he shows us about who you are. Thank you for a heart of unfailing love and a heart of faithfulness. We worship you today, Lord Jesus. We give you thanks for who you are. Jesus, I thank you that with your life, your death, and your resurrection, you have made a way for us to have access to the family of God. And if you have never stepped into the family of God by placing your faith in Jesus and asking him to forgive you and save you, I'm going to invite you to receive the biggest gift you'll ever get at Christmas by today doing just that. He loves you. He wants to forgive you and forever set things straight. If that's what you want, would you just in your heart pray a simple prayer that says this, Jesus, I need you. I'm asking for your forgiveness. I'm trusting that when you died on the cross, you died for me. I believe you rose from the dead. And I'm asking you to live in me. Would you take control of my life? Would you lead me into the future? Father, I thank you for hearing and answering that prayer. I thank you for the gift of your Holy Spirit that you're pouring into hearts right now. others of us 
the need today isn't to experience forgiveness for the first time, but there is a real need for healing. You need Christ to be present in very tangible part of your life. Would you ask God to give you clarity to show you what it is that you're carrying that's causing so much stress or pain? Would you ask Christ to come and just to touch that? If it's a relationship, whatever it is, would you ask him to bring real help and healing there? To give you wisdom and grace to know how to deal with that moving forward. We speak the peace of Christ over all who are here today, over all who are watching and listening online. Jesus, we ask you to bring real healing, help, direction, and peace. We pray this in your strong and matchless name, Jesus. Thanks so much for taking time to tune in and listen to the message today through Freedom Online. Uh, we would love to, the opportunity to meet you personally anytime that you're in our area. But if today you heard something that really connected or that maybe you've got questions about, you'd like to talk with somebody or have someone pray with you, we'd love to hear back from you. You can reach us in a couple of different ways. You'll find on the website a contacts link. You can contact me or any member of our leadership directly. Or you can call us at the number that you see on the website or at the bottom of the screen now. Thanks again for tuning in, and we hope that you have a great week.